Let's pray together before we uh, study the word together. Lord, we're just so thankful that you've given us such wonderful truth in the Gospels. To know our Savior more is a great, great privilege. Lord, what if men had not written it down? And what if Luke hadn't spent the time he took with eyewitnesses to give us an exact accounting of the things that happened? But Lord, we're so grateful that we have the whole story, all we need to know, and the wonder of it. We thank you. We pray that you would uh, concentrate our minds and our hearts now on the great truths that are here, the people, the examples. And we just ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our study in Luke continues. Uh, chapter 1, we're just getting going here with the announcement of the birth of our Savior. Look, I know it's October, but it's a Christmas message, I guess. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. You know what's great about this section? It's like 100% positive. I mean, there's just like nothing bad to say, which is wonderful every now and then. Good news. Good girl. Good response. Pleasure to speak of it. So let's just read uh, the story here in this part, just beginning at verse 26, and then we'll look at it in some depth. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The story begins with, the, if you like to write down notes and alliterate, we'll call this the messenger's mission. Okay, uh, Gabriel the angel has been given another assignment. Back to earth. You know, we already appeared to uh, Zechariah. And where was that? Where did that happen? In the, in the temple, right? Yeah, so now he's going to go to a different place. Um, this is the assignment that all of heaven must have been buzzing about. What a great privilege for him to be able to deliver this message. And remember, he's delivered the message already about another birth to Zechariah, the priest, while he was actually in the holy place announcing the birth of John the Baptist. And what a contrast this mission is going to be. You've got different people, for one thing. Um, Zechariah was an older man. He was a priest. Uh, he was a descendant of Aaron. Uh, this is a young girl. She's a peasant. Um, she's a descendant of David, uh, a different place. You know, Zechariah was in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the capital, Zion, Mount Zion, um, Israel's center. Nazareth is a tiny little village, a little place uh, in the boonies, if you will, um, way up north. 
of there. Uh, and there's a totally different response, too. Zechariah, who should have known a lot better, didn't believe the message. And uh, Mary has a lot of faith. And there's nothing about Mary or her people that would lead them to think that God would do something extraordinary through them. I mean, they really were out in the sticks. And um, Nazareth is a pretty disrespected town. I mean, not because evil was there, but just because it was a nothing place. And she wasn't very important. And I don't know what Gabriel was expecting. I mean, what do angels think was going to happen when they get there? You know, they don't know ahead of time what people are going to do. But he may have figured he'd have to, like, maybe slap another temporary curse on this girl, just like happened back in the temple there where he had to tell Zechariah, you know, he couldn't speak for until John the Baptist was born. But in verse 26, um, you know, if an officiating priest in the temple can't believe, I mean, who knows what's going to happen when they get to this girl. So the messenger's mission sends him 70 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem. Verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So Nazareth is not far from Mount Tabor, actually, where um, Deborah, way back in ancient Israelite times, had Barak gather his troops together, where Gideon's brothers were slain. Uh, Mount Tabor marked an intersection, kind of a junction of tribal borders, where Naphtali and Zebulun and Issachar all kind of linked up there. And Nazareth is just nestled in this little valley in the mountains on the northern side of the plain of Jezreel, right overseeing Armageddon, actually, uh, the valley of Megiddo. And, and it's surrounded by hills on all sides, but it's open toward the south. And from the hilltops, you can actually see the Mediterranean Sea in one direction, 22 miles to the west, and 15 miles to the east, you can actually see the tip of the Sea of Galilee from there. And it's a small town. Gabriel may have thought, um, but you know, the Lord loves to make great things out of little things. So he's going to this small town to deliver this incredible message. And Luke actually gives us a time frame as well here. Six months after Elizabeth's conception, Gabriel's new mission takes place. So he made the announcement to Zacharias. Elizabeth got pregnant soon after that. And then in her sixth month, he goes to this girl, Mary, verse 27. Um, She's, again, a peasant girl. She doesn't have any worldly goods, nothing to speak of in the world's eyes, except for her lineage. She's a descendant of David. And she's happy uh, that she's engaged, I'm sure. Uh, Of course, we don't know all that's going on there, but a typical young girl would be happy to be getting married. And that means... uh, Now, being engaged is basically married, um, except there's no together. You know, there's no cohabitation. There's no being together. But you, when you were engaged in a Jewish culture to break up, uh, you didn't just throw the ring back at the person and say, I'm out of here. You... (laughs) You actually had to get a divorce. You know, Once you were engaged, you had to get a divorce to be split, even though you had not come together yet. So it was a big deal being engaged. It wasn't like... I think somebody said that the average American gets engaged three times before they get married, or at least at some point that was sort of true. So you know, everybody falls in love and gets engaged, and they start thinking about it and go find somebody else. That didn't happen very often in Bible times. Luke doesn't tell us much about Joseph, but um, we know he was a good man. So Mary's a, a girl destined for marriage to a good man. Uh, nothing more, nothing less, you know. And like all good Jewish girls, she's a virgin, and that just kind of goes without saying. They didn't have cars and prom nights or anything like that in those days, so people didn't get in too much trouble. And, you know, her age, we have no idea. And what do you always hear about Mary's age? She's 14 or 15. You always hear that. You know, I have really looked to find actual documentation for the typical age of a Jewish girl at that time, to get married, and I can't find anything. I mean, I've, you know, you hear these in sermons all the time, and I 
So I went like actually like seeking this out. Like what are the original, what are the documents that show us that that was a tomb? I couldn't find them. I, and I couldn't find anybody that actually said. So we have no idea. Let's put, put it like that. She could have been 18. She could have been 26. She probably was young, but um, maybe in her you know, later teens or something. But there's no, sen- there's no reason to think she was 14. It is true that you could be engaged at the age of 12. But that doesn't mean you get married when you're 12 and a half or 13. That's just when those kind of arrangements might be made. So she could be 16, 17, 18 easily. We don't, we don't really even know. So don't worry about that question. <laughs> but here's the, Gabe arrives, Mary's inside. Um, inside would be a fairly contained area. Houses were very small in those villages. Um, rooms were small. In fact, people didn't spend a whole lot of time in their homes because it's not like a place you could really relax. Uh, they're very tiny little rooms. You did a lot of your work outside and things like that. But she's inside because it says entering, coming in. Uh, verse 28, he says, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. So he very abruptly approaches her as the object of God's special attention. How would you respond if an angel walked in and said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you? Well, Mary's response is kind of interesting. Uh, it says, verse 29, it says she's, uh, she's greatly troubled, so she's shaken up. Typical reaction to angelic visitation. In fact, if you look at verse 12 of chapter 1, the exact same reaction as Zechariah. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And uh, so that's probably a pretty normal experience. But, but it says in verse 12 that Zechariah, after it says he was troubled, which is exactly the same word it says about Mary in the original text, it says he was gripped with fear. But it doesn't say that about Mary. It says she started thinking about what the angel's statement might mean. She was greatly troubled and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might mean. So she's never been spoken to like this before. And it's just interesting that Zechariah is paralyzed with fear and, and he's a, a priest in the holy place, the one place you might actually expect to encounter an angel, not that you did expect to but or should have, but you know that could actually happen. Mary just goes right into this mode of, Seriously thinking about what he's saying. She's pondering his words. It says a lot about her. She's got a deep inner life. Inner life, you know. She's quiet and reflective and she thinks about things. And I'm, I'm reminded of Luke chapter 2 verse 51 where it says she treasured all these things in her heart. She's already starting to ponder things. That's the kind of person she was. So we're told she ponders the angel's greeting. Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. And she can't put any meaning to it. I mean, what does that mean? Favored one, me, what's so special about me, and I think that would point obviously to her humility, um, probably her own sinfulness, her own sense of her own sinfulness, which every healthy person has, her own unworthiness, not to mention her just unremarkable condition in life. She is a nobody from nowhere. And uh, Gabriel continues in verse 30, uh, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. And this begins the fulfillment of the messenger's mission, and that is to deliver, here's some more M's for you, the messianic message. Um, That's just the annunciation, as it is called. Messiah is coming, and Mary, you're going to be his mother. And all the deepest longings of Israel, all the deepest longings of the ages are going to be fulfilled in this girl. Verse uh, 30 You have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call him Jesus. He will be great 
he, and will be called the Son of the Most High, for the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. As soon as he says that, she would know he's talking about the Messiah. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's more messianic confirmation, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary, as a good Jewish girl, certainly knew her Bible. She would have known um, Isaiah chapter 9, which we read earlier this morning, and that would have all clicked with her. However you feel about yourself, Mary, God has chosen you. I mean, that's the thing. And there's a message for you and me there. Unworthy as we are, the Bible says God has set his love on us. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Messiah, your King, your Savior, God has set his love on you. That's something worth pondering, isn't it? And thinking about. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Mary was uniquely favored, but every Christian is wonderfully favored by God. Wonderfully favored by God. More than you can ever know in this life. More than you can even imagine, you've been favored if you're a Christian by the gracious work of God on your behalf. Verse 31, you will conceive and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. So the focus of her special favor is on her role as a mother, the mother of whom? Of Jesus. And the name means Savior or God is salvation. So his name delineates his purpose. Matthew records the angel's words to Joseph, uh, Matthew says, uh, the angel told him, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, it is he who will save his people from their sins. And he saves from sin, just in case you're not sure what the salvation is, he saves from sin. Thus we are introduced to the great theme of Luke's gospel, Luke 19.10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So right away he's introduced as the savior, even his very name. So what have we learned? A man will come, named John, who will cause a spiritual awakening and prepare the way for the Lord's visitation. That was the announcement to Zacharias about his son. Mary will conceive and bear a son and name him Savior. And the description goes, he will be great, verse 32, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Just think of how those words must have struck her. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And look at verse 32 there. He will be great. And look at back at verse 15, talking about John the Baptist. He will be great. Both Jesus and John are megas, great. But note the contrast as well as the similarity. Verse 15, John is great in the sight of the Lord. Verse 32, Jesus is great, the Son of the Most High. So his greatness is unsurpassed. Most high, the most high, frequently used in the Bible of God, beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, El Elyon, God most high. John was great in the sight of the Lord. He was a great man. Jesus is great because he's the same essence. He's the son of God most high. God the Son. His greatness is unsurpassed because it's the greatness of God. God in human flesh. 
a human child, the son of the Most High as well. This sets us just upon a path of exploring the incarnation, which is what Luke is going to develop as we move forward. God become man. As John says in his gospel, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John the Baptist was great in that he prepared the way for the Great One, the Son of the Most High. So our attention is directed to this one. Not Mary, not John, but Jesus. And Gabriel goes on in verse 32, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So this exalted one is the long-awaited Messiah. Mary would understand that. and would, It would take her breath away to hear that. It would all start to click. Yes, she knew. She knew she was a daughter of David. And I suppose every daughter of David at some point thinks maybe it could be them, you know. Some thoughts from Psalm 2 may have crossed her mind. The Psalm 2, I will surely tell a decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me and I will surely give thee the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth is thy possession. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. My child, the Messiah, my child, she's thinking. Her son, the Messiah, who would rule for God. Maybe Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven entered her mind. I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My child. And Gabriel continues, verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. It'll be a forever rule. A man to rule forever. From the beginning, we're not talking about just a man because every man comes to the end of his rule. But he will be a real man, real in every way. He's going to be born of her, but more than a man, the son of the Most High. His kingdom will have no end. So in what sense has that been fulfilled? Well, we talked about last time that so much of what we understand in the Old Testament that's prophesied about the Messiah is fulfilled in two comings. He comes twice. And again, the key is that Messiah comes twice. The program is inaugurated in the first coming when he dies for sin. His resurrection begins the expansion of his rule over the hearts and the minds of people all over the earth, but the second coming fulfills all the promises. He reigns with a rod of iron. He brings righteousness, establishes justice throughout the earth, to the ends of the earth, forever. Well, why isn't that made clear to Mary? How come she isn't told about the two comings and all of that? Because the first coming must be properly formulated as a genuine offer to Israel of the Messiah that they should return to God. They, and they won't have any of that, ultimately, which we'll discuss more fully much later on. But you can see a sense of it in Acts chapter 1, if you just flip over to there real quick. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. This is the resurrected Christ with the disciples. It says, when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He's died. He's risen. He's with his men. Okay, this is it, right? Okay, we went through that whole thing. You know, you got killed. We were like out of our heads. Now you're risen. We're all happy. We're ready to go. Now you're going to start the kingdom, right? He said, it is not for you to know the times 
or the epics. It's not for you to know the times which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. So it starts there. The message, the witness, bearing witness to Christ starts there. And if you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 29, the great day of Pentecost, the great sermon, Peter's preaching in verse 29. Let's skip down to there. It says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Is there to be a future kingdom with Christ on the throne and Israel as its center? Yes. Is Christ ruling now in heaven at the right hand of the Father? Yes. But he will return to claim his throne at the proper time. David's throne in Jerusalem. And his reign will extend to the whole earth. So we're in the time now between the comings, this great time It's amazing time. After and yet not yet. It's a sort of a gap, an unforeseen abeyance in the rule of Christ while God maintains a worldwide witness through the church to call souls into the kingdom through faith in Christ. And humanity has every opportunity to prove itself during this time. And it will fail over and over again. Over and over again. Why does God do all this? Why is history set up this way? So we can show that we can't do it. You come up with every scheme, every political system, every sociological system, every religious idea, and you try it and just see how it goes. It's not going to work. There will always be misery. There will always be sorrow. There will always be violence. There will always be oppression. There will always be corruption. Those things will take place because... He's not here. And that he has picked people out and saved them in this world to be witnesses for him so that they could live a life of love and light and integrity is a witness to the world of its own wickedness. So God is doing all kinds of things. When, when people talk about building a new world order, is that going to work? whatever it's based on, democracy or racialism or Nazism or communism or this thing or that thing, is that going to work? Why not? Why does it never work? It's not going to work because man is in rebellion against God. And God's letting that play itself out. He's letting that happen. But he's got a witness. And the witness in the world is you, brothers and sisters. It's 
Christ in you. It's your life. It's the word of God. It's all of that. So Gabriel presents to Mary a, a full picture of the Messiah in his glory, Savior and King, first coming, second coming, if you will, together, because this was the beginning of God's offer to Israel of their Messiah. That's the messenger's mission and the messianic message. And Now let's look at a magnificent miracle. A couple more M's, just throwing out the M&M's this morning. Collect the M&M's. Verse 34, Mary asked a very good question. How can I conceive? I'm a virgin. How's that going to happen? Exactly. Now, Zechariah questioned and got zapped, right? Mary asked the question, and she gets a good detailed answer. So there's something in the motive or the way they ask the question that's, that's different. Not to mention the fact that he's a, an elderly priest who should know a lot better, and she's this little girl who... Um, Maybe she's cut some slack there, but Zechariah didn't believe. I, he just didn't believe what the angel said. And in his case, he had age on his side, he had knowledge on his side, he had a theological education and biblical precedent, all of which failed him in the moment where he should have believed. And uh, he, he couldn't do it. But uh, Mary, Mary's just asking a, a good question, because for, for her it's even more amazing. I mean, Elizabeth was past childbearing for Zechariah, but Mary is unmarried and she's a virgin, so... It's not even a possibility in her mind. But verse 35 gives us the answer. Uh, we're back in Luke chapter 1. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. He affirms to her that this will be an incredible, miraculous birth. God will be the Father, truly, because the conception will be a direct creative act of the Holy Spirit in her womb, using her DNA and whatever God creatively adds to it to create a human being. The Holy Spirit has a creative role. So the child will come by the presence and the power of God, just a direct creative act. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And that sums it up pretty well. The child is not a product of human procreation. Now, people that don't love Scripture or want to make it sort of mythological or just a good story or whatever. They Even church people, the virgin birth just sticks in their craw. They just hate that whole doctrine. So they say it's not true. It couldn't have happened. It's just a nice story or, or whatever. But why is that amazing? Why would a church person think that God couldn't do that? If you think God created the universe, I mean, if you looked at the universe lately, it's pretty big. It's pretty spectacular. A lot of power went into that baby. A lot of uh, inventiveness and creativity and wonderful, incredible, intricate design. And to think that he couldn't do a virgin birth? How hard is that for God? I mean, if you just accept God generally as an existing, this isn't hard for him. So there's not, nothing super amazing about it. But if you want to deny who Christ was, deny the virgin birth. That was a big point of contention in the early 20th century between what was called fundamentalism and modernism. And modernism was anti-miracle, rational, you know, science. doesn't happen. And that's when the great divide happened in, amongst the churches throughout this country, where the virgin birth was one of the key issues at stake. You want to know where a person stood? Fundamental, modernist. Do you believe in the virgin birth? That's, that's the question. That was one of the big questions he asked. But the angel says it's going to be just that. The 
child is not a product of human procreation. He's completely, utterly unique. Unique. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Offspring. Holy is a very unusual term connected with an infant, and it points to his sinlessness. This child will not even possess the Adamic nature. He won't have a bent to sin like you have and like I have. He won't have that. He'll be truly human, but without that. Verse 36, in the next uh, two verses here, Gabriel offers Mary some reassurance and some encouragement. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. So Elizabeth's a good example. Check her out. That's what he's saying to her. Mary, check out your cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth has conceived past her time, and the point is that nothing is impossible with God. In fact, the Greek text really says it like this. Nothing is impossible that God has spoken. His word is sure. And we've seen then the messenger's mission, the messianic message, the magnificent miracle, and now the three M's, Mary's magnificent, marvelous maxim. No, that's four M's. Mary's magnificent, marvelous maxim, the four M's. Her response, verse 38. Behold the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. So the incident concludes with Mary's absolute faithful submission to God's will for her. I am a bond slave of the Lord, she says. Whatever you've said about me, let it be so. Total submission to the will of God. Not your typical teen, but certainly a model for every Christian. Her faith, be it done to me according to your will. Zechariah and Mary were both believers, but what different responses to the activity of God? Zechariah was a believer, but he was faithless on that occasion, on the day of visitation. He wouldn't believe because he just lived his pious life in a rut with kind of a routine view of God who doesn't really act in history. And Mary couldn't understand how it could occur, but she was available. When God spoke, she put herself in his will. So it was like this. His leading would be her place to follow. What God said to do, that's what she was going to do. So Mary believed. So let's be like Mary. Just ready. Ready to align ourselves with God's word. Nothing impresses me more than when a Christian discovers what the Bible says and changes his or her life to conform to that. You know, when you read the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and, it, it, and you say, wow, I don't do that. I'm going to do that. And they start like, actually living a different life. There's nothing excite, more exciting than that. When the Bible says to be pure and have a pure heart and all of that, and you strive for that and actually plan to help yourself be better that way, and there's nothing more exciting than that. When the Bible says to speak the truth, and people start like really trying to speak the truth, and in love, and all of that, that's, that's exciting. And when a person looks at their relationships, and they read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and, de- and it describes love, love is patient, love is kind, love does not take into account a wrong suffered, uh, all those kind of things, and they actually say, do I love like that? I don't love like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start loving like that. And you actually see the difference. 
when Philippians, they read the book of Philippians and it says to be joyful and instead of being glum, they, they actually start turning around and start looking for things to be happy about and rejoicing in Christ and, and, and they kind of lighten up. And, and it's not that any of us are perfect, but when real changes like that happen, there's nothing more exciting than that. That is more exciting to me than when somebody makes a profession of faith in Christ. Because you never know what's really going on when somebody says, okay, I believe, I accept Jesus. But when you see the change, wow. When you see people humble themselves before the word of God, Mary had a, a disposition to do the will of God. So when the Lord's direction was clear, she went forward. She was ready. Zechariah made excuses. He, he like talked himself out of a blessing. Well, how can that happen? You know, I'm really old. My wife's way past childbearing. This is... This is, can't happen. Yeah but, yeah, but I'm Gabriel, remember? Wings, look at me. <laughs> Mary considered what was said and she just placed herself at God's disposal. And I would hate to have God silence me like happened to Zacharias because I didn't believe or limit me in any way because I didn't believe. So as individual members of the body of Christ, let's just try to be like our sister Mary because... Uh, I'm convinced that if we just had her attitude, nothing would be impossible for us to achieve on behalf of the Lord, you know? Behold the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me, to me, according to your word. Can you say that? Be it done to me according to your word. Recently I was reading um, Elizabeth Elliot's book, uh, In the Shadow of the Almighty, which is the biography of Jim Elliot, you know, and all the missionaries that were murdered by the Alka Indians and her, the book is a lot of his letters and um, this is what he said Jim Elliot you wonder why people choose fields mission fields he's talking about away from the states when young people at home are drifting because no one wants to take time to listen to their problems well I'll tell you why I left because those stateside young people have every opportunity to study, hear, and understand the Word of God in their own language. And these Indians have no opportunity whatsoever. I've had to make a cross of two logs and lie down on it to show the Indians what it means to crucify a man. When there is that much ignorance over here and so much knowledge and opportunity over there, I have no question in my mind why God has sent me here. Those whimpering stateside young people will wake up on the day of judgment condemned to worse fates than these demon-fearing Indians because having a Bible, they were bored with it. While these never had heard such a thing as writing. That's a little harsh, but I think there's some truth there. You know? Are we bond slaves of the Lord? Or just something much, much less than that? I hope you are encouraged by the faith of Mary because it's, it's overwhelming, her willingness, her readiness. Mary's marvelous maxim, behold the bondservant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your will. Let that be a rule for life. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for Mary, the mother of our Savior, Lord, a, a wonderful, wonderful young woman. available for you, willing to follow your lead, your direction, willing to serve. You know, Father, what great sorrow she suffered in her life, the things she had to see happen to her own son. 
And what joy in serving you and what a blessing to be so mightily used of God in history, Lord, to change the world. We just ask you, Father, to give us a heart like her by your grace. Humble us, Father, whatever it takes to give us a heart like her. We pray you would do that to us, through us, in us. Make us willing and able. We thank you for her life and her example. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.